Well, let's do that. Um, If you haven't already done so, you can turn over to the book of Isaiah. And if you're just joining us or if you're new, uh, we're in the middle of a verse-by-verse study through the book of Isaiah. Uh, We've entitled the study, I've entitled the study, Seeing God Through Judgment and Redemption. That's really what the book is about. Um, If you're new to Christianity or or maybe if it's just been a long time since you've thought about uh, some of the big picture stuff, uh, the Bible is really about God. (laughs) And uh, I don't want to... Uh, state the obvious, but sometimes we forget that the Bible is primarily interested in revealing God to us, though it teaches us many other things. And when we come to the book of Isaiah, we get a chance to see who God is in a very um, difficult and challenging time in the history of Israel's, or or the nation of Israel's uh, history. And uh, what's going on is... um, the nation is divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So when you read Ephraim and Israel and Samaria, that's talking about the northern kingdom. When you read about Judah and Jerusalem, uh, that's referencing the southern kingdom. But the kingdom is divided and there's been large-scale rebellion against the Lord and God is beginning to bring his judgment to the nations as a disciplinary measure on his people. And what's neat about this is we get to see What does God think about that? How does he both exact discipline and even judgment on his people and at the same time show love and kindness and grace and forgiveness? I think sometimes we as Christians struggle with the character of God because sometimes we see him on the pages of scripture as this God who comes in wrath and judgment. You know, he's like the thunderstorm. He's like the hurricane and he comes and, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's the shock and awe. He is the, the commander in chief of all the armies of heaven and, and he's coming to judge the living and the dead. And other times we see this God who comes in the midst of our rebellion and is ready to forgive. And he is kind. And, and he is forbearing. And he is patient. And, and he is in, in the face of, of horrific sin. He loves his people. And he wants to give them another chance as they repent. And I think that's sometimes confusing. Isn't that confusing? It's like, who is this God? And, and Isaiah helps bring those two pieces together. How can God be both of those Things. And the reality is God is both wrathful and merciful. He, he is both uh, full of compassion and kindness and also full of uh, divine judgment, and rightly so. And Isaiah helps us to see how those things uh, come together in the same people as we look uh, at his dealings with the nation of Israel. Um, so the, the title of our message today, just the section we're going to look at in chapter 9, chapter 10, is Divine Discipline and Sovereign Subagency. Um, divine Discipline and Sovereign Subagency. And, and if uh, you're not sure what I mean by sovereign subagency, um, I needed a thesaurus to come up with that second word. But, um, but we'll, uh, you'll, you'll see why that, that this is really interesting uh, where... Uh, the writer goes here today. So uh, turn with me over to, to Isaiah chapter 9. We've just talked about um, that wonderful Christmas text as we think about it, that the coming child who will be born to us, uh, a son will be given to us, chapter 9, verse 6, right? His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, uh, better translated, Supernatural Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And uh, he will come and he will rule eternally on the throne 
of David, and he will establish his righteousness and his rule and his kingdom forever. And uh, we looked at those verses last time. Now, right out of the gate, as we look at chapter 9, verse 8, look at this. The Lord sends a messenger against Jacob, and it falls on Israel, and all the people know it. That is, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, so again, that's a reference to the northern kingdom, asserting in pride and in arrogance, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord raises against them adversaries from Razin, that's the northern uh, country, and spurs their enemies on, the Arameans on the east, that's another name for Syria, and the Philistines on the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaws. And and I don't know if you feel like this. I feel like Isaiah has a little bit of attention deficit disorder. Uh, do you feel like that when you read it? I mean, we're on a subject, and we're talking about the Messiah, and then you go, wait, what? We're not talking about that anymore. We're talking about this. And, you're, and he just jumps around so quickly in subject matter. And I don't know if you've maybe been frustrated a little bit like that, like I have, but there's a design in this. So before we jump back into these verses, I just want to remind you of the themes because there is a method to Isaiah's madness here. There is design in the Holy Spirit's um, order in which he's putting these prophecies and these subjects together. And I don't want you to be frustrated by that. I want you to understand what Isaiah is doing. So when you're reading the book, you go, oh, okay, I know what he's doing here. So here's what I want you to see. There are three themes that Isaiah keeps cycling back through. Okay, now you need to get this because, remember, chapter 6 is the great revelation of God to Isaiah and his calling, right? And from Isaiah chapter 6, from the calling of Isaiah all the way to where we're at today, and it's going to continue for a little while, we see this cycle of three themes. And at any given moment, Isaiah is going to pivot in and out of one of those themes. But there, there's a reason for this. Okay, now you'll see the reason, but let me, let me just explain the themes, and then as you're reading, especially in the subsequent chapters, you can go, oh, that's theme number two. Oh, he just switched to theme number three. Oh, now he's back to theme number one. And you go, oh, okay, I see what he's doing. He, he's trying... And this is difficult. Um, do we have any like really linear thinkers in the room here? I mean, you just like, dit, 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 and, and, and if it's like, dit, dit, eh, you know, I mean, you're like, ah, I can't deal with that. Any linear thinkers? So this is not a linear book, and it will drive you crazy if you're looking for like, we start at the very beginning, which is a good place to start, and then we go here, and then we go here. It's not like that. It's thematic. And so it will drive you nuts if you're looking for chronological linear sort of laying out of things so uh, and if you're not like that then please pray for those that are um so so here's theme number one um the 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 first thing we see here is the warning and the threat of judgment and that's exactly where isaiah goes here in isaiah chapter 9 verse 8 okay so back in chapter 7 verses 1 to 9 remember this judgment is coming and we get these descriptions of what it's going to be like. The trees are going to be cut down. There's going to be nothing to eat. There's going to be onslaught everywhere. The place is going to be desolate, right? And then we change and then we come back to it again in, that uh, says 17. That should be verse 7 of chapter 7 up through verse, um, or, or verse, seven, yeah, verse 17 of chapter 7 through chapter 8, verse 8. 
Okay, we come back to that theme of judgment again, right? And then in the text we just read, chapter 9, verse 8, all the way down to 19, we, again, we have this threat of judgment. Now, just to remind ourselves, what's the judgment that's coming? The judgment that's coming is that God is going to use the Assyrians to wipe out the northern kingdom. That's what he's going to do. And uh, so that theme keeps coming back. And, of course, Judah, the southern kingdom, they're not immune to this because they're doing the same things the northern kingdom are. So these threats of judgment are coming against Judah as well. So that's theme number one. Theme number two is the assurance of a remnant. Now, let me show you just in our text here where this is going to happen. Okay, so we're going to look at chapter nine and chapter 10 today. So he's going to talk about judgment. Da 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 Talk about judgment. Now, look at chapter 10, verse 20. Chapter 10, verse 20. Look there with me, please. Now, in that day, the remnant of Israel... Oh, you're not there yet. I'm sorry. I'll wait till you get there. Are you there? Okay. Chapter 10, verse 20. Here we go. Now, in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Why? Verse 21. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. So see... We're judgment, judgment, judge it. Er, he changes subjects and now he's talking about a remnant again. So you, you got to have a little bit of a, a posture in reading the book of Isaiah, knowing that at every given moment, he's going to skip tracks. Um, he's going to go to a different subject. Um, but again, that's by design. It's almost like... Um, Many, many years ago, uh, I was involved in, in video production. My, my partner in the business that uh, we owned ended up going to film school, and he's a cinematographer. I went off to engineering school because I was the, the geeky tech guy. And um, th- there's a way that you do film. And, and you've probably seen this in one of your favorite movies where, you know, there's some scene going on, and then you cut to another scene, right? That's a totally different, different place, different uh, uh, subjects going on, different people involved, right? And then you go back to the other scene. And then you might go to another scene. And, and so you've got these different scenes going on. And, and good cinema can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? Good, good cinema, you can have three different things going on. And, and through the writing, through uh, the editing and all that, you've got these three scenes going on. And all of a sudden, boom, you know, you change. And boom, you can change. And that's what Isaiah is doing. Long, long before Hollywood, Isaiah is painting this portrait of these three things that are going on. And he's just jumping back and forth. Here's why. And, and here's, here's the takeaway. He wants you to be at the same time both fearful of the judgment that God is bringing on his people but not despairing that there's no hope, right? So he keeps jumping back and forth. This is serious. You need to repent. This is horrible, this, right? But, 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 wait, God has a plan and he's going to work that plan. And if you repent, then, right? So, so that's what he's doing. He, he's, he's developing these three themes uh, like good cinematography long before the age of film. This is how you did it. You did it through good literature. And that's what this is. This is good literature. Okay, so warning in the threat of judgment, that's theme one. Assurance of a remnant, that's theme Two, and here's the third one, hope of a future king. Hope of a future king. Now, we've seen that. Isaiah chapter 7, right? The virgin will be with child, will bear a son, will call his name God with us. We saw it back in chapter 9. Um, uh, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, his name will be called Supernatural Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, right? We'll see it again, and I'm not getting ahead of myself, but we'll see it again in chapter 11 verse 1 the righteous branch that's going to come that's the next picture of the messiah that's coming now now can i can i show you the coolest part of this 
And this, this was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, because I'm studying and I'm getting confused. I'm going, okay, well, if I'm confused, you guys are going to be confused. So, so we're going to review the theme. So I'm doing this. I saw, I saw something for the very first time. Isaiah does something. Actually, Isaiah doesn't do it. God does it. Isaiah just tells us about it to help us to keep these three themes in mind. And this is just really, really amazing. And I'm eager to share it with you. Are you ready to hear it? Okay, can I tell you? What, what, what? Watch this. This is so cool. Those three themes are reflected in the three names of the children just mentioned. Did you get it? What are the three kids? Well, let's go back and look at their names, okay? All the way back to chapter 7. Isaiah shows up in Ahaz's palace, commissioned by God. Go to Ahaz and tell him this, but don't go by yourself. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you, and take your boy. Take your son with you to the king. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being Isaiah's kid? Uh, son, get up this morning. We're, 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 you're going to come with me today. You're going to work with me today. Where are we going, Dad? We're going to the palace. We're going where, Dad? Because did, did Ahaz think very highly of Isaiah? And you're going to bring your boy. And his boy's name is Shi'ar Yashub, which means what? A remnant will return, right? Um, That's very interesting. So there's child number one, and that reminds us of what? The assurance of a remnant. What's child number two? Keep reading. Chapter 7, verse 14, right? The virgin will be with child. She'll give him the name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. What does that that help us for? Child number 2 reminds us of the hope of the future king, right? And we see his name repeated just like we see Isaiah's son repeated, okay? This is really, isn't this interesting? God, I told you, you sign up to be a prophet, God takes the baby name book from you. Because he's gonna, he's gonna name your children for you and he's gonna use them in his plan. And even through Isaiah's children, uh, there is a reminder of the, the main themes that God wants to press upon the people. Well, who's, who's child number three? What's that? That's right. No one wants to pronounce the Hebrew, so I will do it for you, right? Machar shalal chashbaz. And, and Hebrew has that, that guttural H. <laughs> You know, like, like you're getting ready to, sorry ladies, like you're getting ready to spit, you know, right? It's a guttural sound. So, so boys, you can practice that this afternoon. It's like guttural macher, right? Macher. Um, macher shalal. Yeah, and, and what's, what is his, it's, it's, it's four words, right? It's swift, it's booty or, or, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the spoil that you would get from going in and, and stealing stuff from your enemies. It is, um, speedy. And pray like like a like a, a buzzard cleaning up a roadkill. I mean, that, that's what we're talking about here, and that's a picture of what the warning and the threat of judgment. Okay, you get it. So God doesn't tell us about three different children and three different names in these sections just because He wants to tell you their names. They serve a purpose in helping us to see the three themes that are going on here. Okay, so you got it. That makes sense. 
So as you're reading, remember Isaiah's got a little ADD, okay? And he's jumping around, so you need to jump around with him. That's where a good study Bible will help you because sometimes we don't see those transitions uh, as easily as we should, okay? Questions on that? Does that make sense? Okay, so let's go back to chapter 9 now and let's pick it up where we were looking just a moment ago in 9 chapter 8. We're back in the theme of judgment, a coming judgment, because even though there is hope of the Prince of Peace, the people are not repenting. And, and in these verses, we get a little bit of insight in terms of what's going on uh, as well. And the way I want to I present this to you, because uh, um, you know I get to do all the talking in here. It really is kind of lopsided, you know, I'm, I'm the teacher, you're the students, and I just get up here and teach. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk you through this, and you're, you're going to teach the class today. You're like, where did we sign up for that, right? No, we're going to do this. Okay? I'm just going to ask questions, and, and you guys are going to work together, because th- this is how we learn how to study the Bible, is we, we talk through this together, okay? So Isaiah chapter 9, um, look at verse 9. And all the people know it, that Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, asserting in pride and arrogance of heart, what do they assert? The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. So what was the chief heart problem of the people, according to verse 9? Why is this judgment coming? Pride and arrogance. Okay, now, now think with me. How was pride and arrogance being manifested through the king and through the people. What were they doing to demonstrate their pride and arrogance? Idolatry, Idolatry. okay. That, that's certainly the heart of it, right? They were worshiping false gods. Right, exactly. Alice, you're actually right. Look, look at the next verse, okay? The next verse explains their pride and arrogance. Verse 10. The bricks have fallen down, and we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. They're going, oh, look over there. It's almost like, oh, our, our brick wall fell down. Well, we'll just build it back up, right? When for decades, God has been saying, I'm destroying your stuff to get your attention so you will repent. And what's their attitude? Yeah, we're just going to build it back up. Right? We're just, we're just going to fix it. We're just going to build it back. That is, guys, that is blatant arrogance. That, okay, well, it's no big deal. We're just going to, we're just going to rebuild it right back. We're just going to keep right doing what we're doing, God. And look at the next part. You know, the sycamores have been cut down. Why have they been cut down? Because foreign invaders are coming in and destroying their land. Well, we'll just plant new trees. You know, uh, and and maybe maybe some of you parents have seen this where you're trying to train your children in the things of the Lord. You're trying to train them to walk with God. And so you have to bring some negative consequence to their home and their life as a motivational means to help them to really repent and do what's right. And sometimes... Sometimes children have been known to do this. Well, if you're taking my Legos away, I'm just going to go play with my airplanes. Right? I mean, that, that's, that's kind of the attitude here. And they miss the whole point, right? So it is. It, it's pride in the heart. It's pride in idolatry, and it's manifested in that. And, and you know, th- there's an application here for us because the Bible says 
that those whom the Lord loves, what does he do? He disciplines, he chastens. And you know, sometimes God is bringing discipline in your life. God is doing things to try to get your attention and to try to help you to repent in areas that you and I need to repent. And we all need to repent, right? It's not like we're singling out, oh, you have to repent. Uh, No, all Christians are needing to repent because we're all a work in progress, right? And God brings those consequences. And what do we do? Just great against them. Well, if I okay, I'll just go over here. So remember that the point of God's discipline is to train us. What does Hebrews say? All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Right? Amen. Amen. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. So we have to remember in the moment of discipline that is not pleasant, that's designed to not be pleasant or it wouldn't do its job. Do we really want to be righteous like our Savior is righteous? And if we do, we respond to the discipline the right way, don't we? We humble ourselves, right? We we want to, and we're we're all great at being defensive. Can we just admit that? We're just all really good at being defensive, you know? No, no, not me. And we just need to humble ourselves in that moment and submit to what God is doing, um, and, and to, to long for that righteousness that discipline is designed to achieve. Let's look at another question: As God brought disciplinary punishment to des- uh, as God brought disciplinary punishment designed to lead the people to repentance, how did they respond? Well, we, we kind of already answered that in verse ten, right? Well, we're just gonna if you're gonna do that, we're, we'll just rebuild it. You're gonna break our wall, we're just gonna rebuild it. You're gonna cut down our trees, we're just gonna plant new ones. <clears throat> and um, can I just ask you a question? Is it a good idea to just kind of one-up God? <laughs> Not usually, no. no. But don't we act like that sometimes? You know, we get to the point where we're acting toward God, we're treating God like he's one of us. And And, and maybe one of the most amazing examples of God's kindness and compassion toward us is that when we act like that, that he doesn't give us what we deserve. You know, like some little two-year-old mouthing off to his mom and dad when that little two-year-old, you know, would die in a week without the intervention of his parents. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't see that he depends totally and completely on his parents for everything. But in his heart, he's way above his parents, isn't he? Sometimes, our children, our grandchildren. We were like that too. It's just so long ago, we don't remember that, right? So that's how they responded. So so again, a humble, teachable, submissive response is what God wants. Now, now you might be thinking, well, how has God disciplined his people today? How does he discipline his people today? You know, the answer is, in the Bible, God usually tells us, hey, I'm doing this to discipline you. And we don't have that sort of, you know, personal divine commentary that tells us everything. Obviously, the Bible does tell us some ways that that God disciplines us in general. But here's what I want you to see. If God is working all things for good, which he is, 
Romans 8.29, that he would conform you to the image of his son. He works all things for your good. here's, Here's a little secret to the Christian life. Everything in your life is being orchestrated by God as a training opportunity. So if you will, everything is discipline. Not not discipline like, I'm punishing you. I mean, that's one form of, of discipline. Everything is training. Everything God is doing in your life is designed to train. Which means, in every circumstance of life, what does God want you to do? What does he want me to do? Humble ourselves and learn. And submit to what he's doing. Isn't it, isn't it encouraging, and we'll talk about this with Assyria in a moment, to remember that behind every hardship and every hurt and every pain and every situation and every frustration, God is working for your good and for my good. And he's calling us to be a part of that plan, to go along with that plan because it's good for us rather than to fight against it and, and, and to grate against it and to complain about it. That's right. Yeah, that's it. Same thing. That's right. Yes. Yes, it sure is. It sure is. Here's the third question. How did the Lord respond? And lightning came down from heaven and... No, it doesn't say that. But look at what he does. Therefore, verse 11, the Lord raises against them adversaries from Rezin... And spurs their enemies on, the Arameans on the east, the Philistines on the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaws. God says, okay. God is relentless to accomplish his purposes. And we know, because we know how the story ends, that a lot of people die, that a lot of people are hurt and burdened, Um, because the people refuse to repent. But God will accomplish his purposes. God will uh, redeem his people. He will save that remnant. Yes? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and we'll we'll, uh, we'll put the timeline up here, um, probably not today, but probably next week. But yeah, so it's Isaiah's ministry covers four kings. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking. We're talking generations. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So. So God responds by saying, if you know, if that's the way you want it. Um, look at verse thirteen. Yet the people do not turn back to Him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord. Of hosts, how do the people respond? Yeah, yeah. Don't we do this? We know God's right. We know we're wrong. We know what we should do. We just don't want to admit it. It's almost like it's like we don't want to let God win. And this, this is what arrogance does. Arrogance makes you stupid. I mean, it really does. And I hate to be that blunt, but it does. It makes you stupid to where you know 
what's true. You know what's right. You know what needs to happen. But there's that hardness in your heart that says, but I just don't want to admit it. And, and you just, you spiral down. And that's what's going on here. They do not turn back. They know it's God who is striking them, the text says. Yet they will not seek the Lord of hosts. Now watch this, watch this. What's God going to do? So the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush in a single day. The head is the elder and honorable man. The prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray. So what, what God is saying is he's giving the leadership of the people over to the falsity. So, so no longer will the people have leaders that are speaking truth to them anymore. Verse 17, therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their, in their young man, nor does he have pity on their orphans or widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. Yet in spite of this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. And then we see it in the, the subsequent verses there, all the way down through 21. Wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It even sets the thickets of the forest aflame. And they roll upward in a column of smoke. By the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up and the people are like fuel for the fire. No man spares his brother. Um, And this gets graphic here, guys, but stay with me. They slice off what is on the right hand, but still are hungry. They eat what is on the left hand, but they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim and Ephraim Manasseh. And together they are against Judah. And in spite of this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. What, what is going on there? They're fighting and they're killing each other. They're devouring each other. So God gives them over to their sin and civil war breaks out. Anarchy breaks out. The leaders are... Um, no, they're not, well, they're, they're ungodly and they're, they're not able to help the people. And so people turn on one another. And before you know it, the, the reason they're talking about Manasseh and Ephraim, why are they talking about Ephraim and Manasseh? Brothers. They're brothers. Brother devours brother is what the text is saying. And, and we're supposed to sit here with our jaws on the floor saying, This is what happens when we mock God, when we reject His counsel, when our our, our arrogance, we rise up against His training and disciplinary measures. God gives us over to our sin. It's it's a very similar progression, actually, than we see in Romans chapter 1 as God gives them over. Now, what what were the main crimes of the people? Look back at verse 17. And then look into chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. What were the main crimes of the people? We, we see arrogance in the heart. That's the main thing. But how is that arrogance manifesting itself amongst the people? Yeah, they're ungodly and wicked. In verse 17, right? Everybody is godless and speaking foolishness. Everybody is an evildoer. Okay, in verse 17. What about chapter 10, verses 1 and 2? What else do we see them doing? Making evil laws. 
cheating the defenseless. You see that in verse 2? Depriving the needy of justice and robbing the poor of my people in their rights so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Now, this is not the first time we've seen this. What are the, what are the people doing to the least among them? They're taking advantage of them. What are they supposed to be doing? Helping them, protecting them. And yet, Isaiah says, they're, they're easy spoil for the enemy. So, the people are not only engaged in vertical sin, pride and arrogance toward God and unrepentance, that vertical sin is playing out in horizontal sin amongst the poor, amongst evil actions, evil doing, godless uh, evil speech, and neglecting the least among them whom they're supposed to be protecting. And, and just as a footnote to this, you will see this in the prophets a lot. God cares about the poor and the widow and the orphan and the needy and the downcast, and he calls his people to do something about it. I, I don't get political, but you know that's our job, not the state's job, according to Scripture. And that's another series for another day, and we need to huddle up and talk about what that looks like. But can you can you see that? James says, true and undefiled religion in the sight of our God is this, what? To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep yourself unstained from the world. So those are the crimes that are going on. And so what is God's goal? Chapter 10, verse 3. Now what will you do in the day of punishment and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or to fall amongst the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. Do you see the repetition of that? God is saying, I'm going to accomplish my purposes. My hand is still stretched out. Now, interesting, what is God's goal according to verse 3? What's his goal? What's that? To bring humility, humility, right? That's right. How is he going to do that? You're you're right. How is he going to do that? They have no other option. option. Okay. You you need to get this. Um, When we're acting arrogant and prideful and self-sufficient, God has a strategy. And the strategy is, I'm going to pull every rug out from under you you have. I'm going to remove every support you're leaning on. I'm going to undo every other false hope that you're hanging on to. Because he's mean? No. Why? Why? So we turn back to him. You see that? And, and this, this is not unique to Isaiah. This is what God, this is God's goal. God wants us to trust Him. That's it. Trust Him. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your riches. Don't trust 
princes, the scripture says. Don't, don't trust other things, ultimately. Trust him. And when we're having trouble doing that, or we're rebelling that, or we think that we are sufficient in ourselves, God's going to humble us, isn't he? And he's going to do that by kicking out all the other supports that we're leaning on. So that we'll lean on him. So we'll turn back to him. Now, in Isaiah's day, what is that? (laughs) These people that are thinking they're going to take matters into their own hands, the northern kingdom, what are they going to do? They're going to side with Syria, and they're going to go against Assyria. That's not going to go so good. And God's going to show them. God's going to show them their arrogance in a bloody defeat where Assyrian comes in and destroys the northern kingdom. But you know what? Um, we may not be tempted to go make an alliance with Canada. Um, or, but but can, I, can I give you some, some false support systems that we might, we might be tempted to lean on? Um, well, let me ask you, since you're leading the class today, what are some false support systems that we're tempted to lean on? It's the American way. What we can accomplish? What else? Security. Security. Yeah. Our military might and our arrogance that we are the greatest country ever existed and that God's going to bless us forever. Okay. Other people. Yeah, here's, here's how you discover what, where your false support systems are. Where in your, in your life do you tend to have strong negative emotion? Just look at where those things are. Where do I get really angry? Where do I really worry? Where am I really afraid? And you trace those back and you'll find a false support system underneath those emotions. Um, you know the hymn, Trust and Obey? That's what God wants. Will you trust me? Will you, will you do what I'm telling you to do? Will you humble yourself? Remember that I'm God. You're not. I'm good. I have your best interest at mind. Will you trust me? And will you do what I'm asking you to do? That, that's it. That, that's, that's what God is looking for in a nutshell. The hymn is right. It is, it is that simple. And yet every day we have to choose who we're going to lean on, right? Who we're going to listen to, who we're going to trust. And as fallen people, redeemed, being sanctified, but still in process, we're really, really good at going back to those things that we used to lean on, aren't we? Even though we know better. So let's remember that this is God's goal, and and whatever our temptations are, to humble ourselves and to lean on Him. Now look at verse 5. There's a transition in verse 5, chapter 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria! The rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder. There's there's one of the kids' names represented again there. And to trample them down like mud in the streets. What does that mean? 
Okay, you guys are on the right track. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. Look back at verse five again, because because you're right. But listen to the language. Woe to Assyria! That right, Assyria is going to be punished. The rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation, I send it against the godless nation. The godless nation there is who? Israel. That's the northern kingdom. You say, well, Assyria is a godless nation too. Yeah, I know. We'll get to that in a minute. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like. I know, I know, I know. That's why you're supposed to read that and go, he said, what? God is using Assyria to be, notice the language, the rod of my anger to Israel, the godless nation. So God has commissioned Assyria to be his agent of wrath and anger on his people. Now, what's interesting about that? This is what's interesting. Assyria is both God's enemy and God's agent. Is that confusing? Can you think of other examples in the Bible of people, countries, nations that were both God's enemy and also his agent? Babylon. Yeah, we're gonna, that's that's the next generation, right? Pharaoh. Yeah, and this isn't this neat how in God's amazing sovereignty, yeah, there it is. Pastor Terry's doing Romans nine, and we're doing Isaiah nine, and the message is very similar. God is sovereign; He's overall; He's running this plan, and yet He's going to use. This is incredible. He's going to use wicked people and wickedness to accomplish his purposes. To put it in context in our times, it would be as if Russia, the evil one, in our eyes, would, would conquer us in some type of major battle. Right, yeah. And, and, and God say that, that that's my agent. Yeah, that's right. Now, now this this is where it, this might be a little bit uncomfortable. And, and I don't know about you, I sat down with, with my kids the other night prepping them for... Romans 9, as Pastor Terry was coming to teach, and I said, I said, guys, um, this is hard to understand. This is hard for dad to understand. And I have two theological degrees. They laughed at that, so I thought that was funny. Right? Remember that? Um, Pharaoh is a wicked ruler. Pharaoh is an arrogant, pompous, prideful uh, dictator of the known era. And he hates Yahweh. He hated Moses. He hated the Jews. And God says, but he's a part of my plan. Now, how does that work? Would someone want to come up and draw the schematic on that? How, how does God use wicked people to... Just come on up. I'll give you a pen. You draw the schematic. Yeah, it's like... You know, you know how there's the stereotypical black box, right? There's this, there's this little box here that's, uh, you know, some, some device, right? You got your input, you got your output, and there's the black box. Oh, it's a blue box, I guess, in my thing here. But, and it's like, what's inside there? And it's like, I don't know. I don't know how this works. And, and so, so Zippy, our, our ten-year-old theologian, um, 
we're talking about this just a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about with Pharaoh. And it's like, so does God harden Pharaoh's heart or does Pharaoh harden his heart? And the answer is yes. Does that make you uncomfortable? That makes me uncomfortable. I'm, I'll be very honest with you. That makes me uncomfortable. I like to figure things out. I want to know what's in the box. And God says, eh, you're not looking in the box till heaven. Seriously. Seriously. We don't get to look in the box. But here's what he says. And, and this is why, you know, it's about trusting God and obeying him. That's, the, that's leading up to this. Will we believe, will we trust that God is completely in control? that he's using all things to accomplish his plan, and that he uses even wicked nations and wicked people and wicked circumstances to do that. Well, we believe that. I think the cautionary tale for us is that with Pharaoh, for example, he had six opportunities mm-hmm. to obey God, That's right. turn to God, and mm-hmm. God gave him, actually sought him mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Which kicks into Romans one, mm-hmm. where after a while, if we reject God enough, mm-hmm. after a while he just—I I don't want to say he gives up on us, but he turns us over. Gives us over to our sin. Yeah. To our mm-hmm. sin, to our hardness yep. of our heart, mm-hmm. and so you look at that, and yes, for six times he hardens mm-hmm. his own heart, and then yeah. after that, it says God gave him over to really a stubborn heart. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it gave him over yeah. to that, yeah. to the point where, uh, just like in Romans 1, he just said, okay, you rejected me all these times. That's right. And, you know, and for us, too, we can reject and reject him. Mm-hmm. And the danger is that at some point, he may just turn us over. Give us over. That's right. That's right. Well said. Yeah, Rob? That's right. Joseph, he figured that out, and he was working with the plan. That's right. That's right. And that's what we want to do. Yeah. We want to figure it out working with God's plan. Yeah, I mean, we can go around the room, right? Joseph, Daniel, um, yeah, yeah, Shadrach and Benny, yeah. I have sympathy sometimes for Judas Iscariot, because he was used as an instrument of God's that had to be performed, Mm -hmm. yet we know he had an opportunity to Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. maybe I'm wrong, but you sometimes yeah. feel sorry for Judas because. Well, and and, and I think I think that's well founded in the sense that we we should show mercy and feel compassion on all sinful people that don't repent, and from Judas to everybody else. And and again, we're not we're not thinking about those people as. Uh, in fact, one one of my kids asked me this, you know, um, which I can't think of, my, I think it was Eric. Um, basically saying, are we puppets? That, that's a good question. Because you read some stuff in the Bible and you go, it kind of sounds like God's just pulling the strings, you know? And So that's why you have to be very careful about reading the whole thing because divine sovereignty that God runs and purposes and rules overall does not in any way negate 
the moral agency and the human responsibility that he gives all people. So does God always accomplish his purposes? Absolutely. Can anyone thwart his plan? Absolutely not. But we are responsible and God gives us opportunities to repent. He gives us genuine opportunities to believe the gospel. And, and again, we, we, we don't know what the black box is, at least in this life, on how that works. So we need to believe what God tells us. And theologians call this a paradox. Uh, we, we need to be comfortable trusting and believing, even though a paradox exists in these things. Okay. Um, yet Assyria, this is interesting. Look at verses, verses 7 and following. Assyria does not realize that it is God's agent. Look at this. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather its purpose, the purpose of Assyria, is to destroy and cut off many nations. For it says, are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish and Hamath like uh, Arpad or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdom, kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So Assyria is thinking, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. We're going we're to kill people and break things, right? We're going to take over the land. And, and, um, and they're just going to go into Judah just like they've gone into Samaria. So you see that from the perspective of Assyria, they don't realize that agency, do they? Unbelievers don't recognize that they are a part of God's plan too. They just don't realize it. So when God has accomplished his good purpose through a wicked nation and king, he will then destroy them for their wickedness. So this is interesting. You know, we talked about uh, Judas. We talked about um, the sin of people in the life of of, uh, Joseph. We've alluded to Daniel. We've talked about, um, of course, Isaiah in his day, um, Pharaoh, that God uses people to accomplish his good purpose, but apart from the repentance of those wicked people, of which God does give genuine opportunity to repent, as he did with Pharaoh, as he did with uh, uh, the the Babylonians, and in in the case of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar did repent. So sometimes it does happen. Um, But in the case of all those things, if a person does not repent, though God may use them for good, he ultimately holds them morally responsible for their wickedness. And that's what God says here in these remaining chapters, or remaining verses, look at verse 12. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. Interesting, interesting. What's the real sin in the heart of the Assyrian king? Pride and arrogance, the same thing, the same thing, okay? So, um, we see that. And uh, interesting, look at verse 15, he gives, he gives these, these sort of analogies of how we're to think about the fact that God is using Assyria, but he's also going to punish Assyria for their sin. Verse 15, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? Is the club wielding those who lift it or the rod lifting him who is not wood? It's saying, you know, in all these things, Assyria is what? The tool, the instrument, and God is the one using the instrument, right? 
So verse 16, therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease on the stout warriors, and under his glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame, and the light of Israel, here, here, he's gonna, he's gonna change subjects here again, okay? Then the light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and its briars, and he will destroy the glory of his forest, and of its fruitful garden, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away, and the rest of the trees of the forest will be so small in number that a child could write them all down. Now, this is Assyria. Remember the map? I should have put it on here again. Remember how big this nation is? And God says, I'm going I'm to so utterly destroy your land that a toddler can go out and count the remaining trees that are left. So we're left, guys, with this tension. God supernaturally uses the forces of wickedness to accomplish his righteous purposes. Yet those who practice wickedness are morally responsible before God and will be punished for their wickedness, apart from, of course, their, their repentance. And there's the tension. There's, there, there's the, uh, the inputs that come into our black box that remain unresolved. But you know what that means? And, and this is why God tells us these things. There is no enemy in your life. There is no threat. There is no hurt. There is no suffering. There is no circumstance. There is no situation that God is not using for your good and his glory. And that should, give, should bring us great hope and great encouragement, shouldn't it? Whether you're frustrated with your mom and dad for some decision or you're frustrated with your 401k or you're uh, plagued by fear of a cancer diagnosis or whatever it is, to, to trust that God is working in your life and there is no enemy that is not ultimately his agent. And so we trust him. And we trust him. Now, we're responsible for how we respond to that, aren't we? So, so let's, let's just reaffirm right now, that we, by God's grace, will be a part, a willing, humble part of the plan God wants to do in our life to make us like His Son. And let's humble ourselves and not grate against and fight against and grumble against the very things that God intends for our good. All right? Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank You for uh, these verses. Uh, Give us wisdom and and ability now to apply what we've learned Uh, thank you that we can rest in and trust in your good and sovereign hand and uh, to know that um, that you are completely in control of all things would you help us to turn away from a self-sovereignty and an arrogance and a pride and, and in humble trust might we walk with you in obedience and love and reliance In Jesus' name, amen.